management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, uh, recording today on Rurundjeri land, and it is my great pleasure to be bringing you the fourth and final panel from the Energy Efficiency Summit 2022, uh, which of course we presented back in October with our friends at AI Group, ACOS and the Property Council. This was a particularly fun panel chaired by the Energy Efficiency Council's Holly Taylor, focusing in on the industrial sector. Its title was Heavy Industry, Lighter Loads, Competitiveness Through Efficiency, and it featured uh, insights and expertise from John Judson from Race for 2030, uh, Sharon Champness from Mollycop Australia, and of course the inimitable Alison Reeve from the Grattan Institute. They unpacked the opportunities and the challenges of uh, unlocking the big potential for improving energy productivity and and fuel switching in the industrial sector, um, and also a bit of commentary along the way around the impending national energy performance strategy and how we can all work together to make sure that this strategy is actually strategic. So with uh, that little teaser, uh, I will uh, hand over to me introducing this very panel. So we've done a deep dive on residential buildings, a deep dive on commercial buildings. Obviously, industry crucial, um, AI group and foundation partner to this whole effort. Alas, Tenant Reid, climate and energy guy from uh, uh, Australian Industry Group. I feel uh, entitled to share this because he's posting regularly on Twitter his current health status, which is he's got COVID. Um, it hasn't stopped uh, or, or hampered his gift game in any way, shape or form. I'm not sure if he's following along at home, but if you are tenant, uh, best wishes for a speedy recovery, not least because we've got a podcast recording on Sunday night. So the good news is, and I've heard some compliments to the energy and enthusiasm that uh, that Frankie Muscovich brought to the previous panel, we have a wonderful replacement for tenant in, in Holly Taylor, Head of Projects at Energy Efficiency Council, one of the, the few women I know that go toe-to-toe with F. Muscovich for energy and enthusiasm. Holly, come on down. Um, Holly's going to be chairing an incredible group of experts. Sharon Champness is the General Manager for HR Safety and Environment at Mollycop, Australia's sole manufacturer of specialised steel products for industries like mining, smelting and rail transport. She's an experienced senior executive with broad experience across the mining and, and manufacturing sector. And I know a bit about Mollycop. We've, um, we've d- done a bit of work together over the journey, telling the story of what you've achieved in terms of energy efficiency and energy management. So glad to have a, a doer on the panel today. Thanks for being with us, Sharon. Uh, John Judson, another doer, uh, currently the CEO of Race for, for 2030, Australia's uh, big new CRC that's trying to drive uh, the, an energy productivity agenda and, and embedded in the energy transition, obviously collaboration between business, uh, uh, government and, and industry um, to, to drive an innovation agenda, um, which is so crucial in many parts of the economy. It's great to have uh, you with us, John. And last but certainly not least, Alison Reeve who these days is the Climate Change and Energy Deputy Program Director at Grattan Institute. Um, uh, but she also has two decades of experience in climate change, clean energy policy and technology in the private, public, academic and not-for-profit sector, including um, in, the, in the federal government. And when we uh, see a new dawn breaking, 
a new energy efficiency strategy. Well, Alison, you've seen a few over the journey, so you might you might be in a <laughs> position <scars>. to <laughs> have some scars and, and perhaps some hard won experience we can bring to bear on this this effort. Maybe we can uh, make it stick this time. But uh, that's enough from me, Holly. Yeah, over to you. Awesome, thanks, Luke. And um, whilst I can't claim to be uh, Australia's energy and climate guy. I was recently called energy efficiency's hype woman, and there's no. Uh, genuinely, it was it was caught on tape in WA at Energy in WA. Um, but I, I can honestly state that the thing that I am most hyped about is industrial energy efficiency, and the reason for that is because 40% of Australia's energy consumption comes from industry. That's from manufacturing and mining. So it's huge opportunity to reduce. And why is it such a huge opportunity? Well, Australia ranks uh, 22nd out of 25 uh, in the American uh, Council for an Energy Efficient Economy's International Energy Efficiency Scorecard. Um, that is the worst out of the developed countries in the list. Uh, those 25 countries are the largest energy users around the world. Now, what's great about being so crap is that there's so much opportunity to improve. And that's why I'm pretty excited to be on the panel with this group of legends, even though I was a late ring-in. And uh, Tenant, if you are listening at home, I, I hope I don't upset you too much by not asking any key questions. So with that in mind, let's get to it. Um, Sharon, you work for Mollycop. Mollycop's a really large energy user. Indeed, you've got steel balls, which are pretty cool to look at. They're really red hot when they come off the manufacturing line. You've already done a lot of really big energy efficiency opportunities, but you're looking at more to do. So from your perspective, what's the industry context and why does energy efficiency matter? Yeah. Well, I guess the first thing I'd like to say is not everyone in the industry is crap. Uh, there are some of us for whom this has been a focus for a very long time. In fact, uh, one of my team recently found minutes of meetings from the 1970s for the Energy Management Committee of what was uh, Mollicop at the time. And he said it was fascinating reading because uh, they were working through the same sorts of things that our energy uh, committee works through now, you know, looking at how we're measuring our energy use, what are the opportunities for improving, uh, you know, how do we prioritise those and work out paybacks and then how do we celebrate success, uh, which is very much the process uh, that we uh, continue to use. And Mollycop's got a really good track record of uh, driving uh, energy efficiency. So I guess the first thing I want to say is some of us are already passionate and have done a lot of work in that space and have actually taken a lot of the easy wins in that space. So mature organisations have actually done a lot and it's the hard stuff that's actually left on the table. I guess the second thing I'd say in terms of the context is that um, the energy prices that we've seen this year have actually really changed the landscape in terms of the drivers for energy efficiency. So, um, as Holly said, we use a lot of energy uh, at Mollycop. Uh, we take uh, recycled scrap steel and we melt it down uh, and we make um, uh, value-added products, uh, not just grinding balls for the mining industry, but also uh, rail wheels. Um, we're the only uh, manufacturer of rail wheels uh, in Australia. And um, we've seen, like, our energy prices uh, escalate four to five times uh, what they were last year uh, to the point that that increase wipes out our profitability uh, as an organisation. And we've spent a lot of time this year working with our customers to push those prices through in an environment where we're competing against imports and imports don't have the same energy challenges uh, coming out of Asia. 
So to some extent, that really improves the payback on energy efficiency projects, right? Because all of a sudden, you've got this massive cost. Uh, but at the same time, organisations that are energy intensive are really worried about viability and so are less likely to invest in energy efficiency when you're actually not sure you can survive uh, when energy affordability is such a challenge. And I guess the final thing I'd love to be able to say about the drivers uh, of energy efficiency for industry is I'd love to be able to sit here and say our customers really want us to do it. But one of the interesting things we're still finding is that while our customers are really interested in what we're doing around decarbonisation and efficiency, there's not yet really a preparedness to pay. So um, that's a real challenge uh, for us because of what it means is that you're needing to fund those things. They need to stand on their own merits, but we're not quite seeing our customers uh, get excited about paying uh, for low-carbon products yet. Thanks so much for that. It's a really like interesting point to start because you've mentioned that Mollycop's already done a lot of the quick and easy wins and the things that have low paybacks, which is a really interesting segue to, to John because John, the Race for 2030 CRC is particularly interested in innovation. And when you're thinking about something like energy efficiency, which as uh, sexy as it is, thanks, Margot, for pointing that out to everyone. Um, you only have to look at this panel about how sexy it is. <laughs> it's fair. It's very fair. Um, as sexy as it is, it's not really been that innovative because it's existed for so long. So what are the opportunities around innovation and energy efficiency and bringing down those costs before we start getting demand for the higher cost emissions reductions activities? Sure. So the uh, just a little bit about Race for 2030. I mean, we've got the most interesting thing is we've got $300 million of resources to invest over the next period through to 2030 uh, to double energy productivity. Um, and we're doing a lot of, we're, we're kicking off a lot of major projects, multi-year, multi-million dollar projects at the moment. Big focus at, uh, right now is on load flexibility. So as was mentioned by uh, Andrew, um, in, in terms of where they're going in California, we'll, we'll be looking to talk to California now about doing a joint project with them in that space. Um, we're going to be moving on to doing large programs around electrification of process heating, so and particularly using high-temperature high heat pumps. Um, also, and again, referring back to the first session, um, we're going to be doing a lot of work on the uh, on Industry 4.0, um, uh, Industry uh, IoT and uh, and uh, artificial intelligence, and maybe digital twins even uh, for uh, improving energy performance in the in the manufacturing sector. Um, and so we'll be looking for, for people to partner with, end users and other uh, collaborators uh, to do you know, major, major multi-year programs in this area to push uh, innovation in, the, in that space. Uh, we're also doing some work on decarbonisation of value chains. Uh, we're just about to kick off a project on uh, development of low-carbon uh, cement, uh, which obviously has a big in, uh, impact on the uh, built environment. Um, We've got a, a large project we're about to kick off on EV integration, so uh, vehicle to home, vehicle to business, um, to a to a charging uh, particular focus, which is going to be like one of the magic bullets for um, the satisfying the re requirements of the grid and uh, and uh, providing low cost storage, which is because you know, EVs are uh, massive batteries on wheels, um, and uh, we're also uh, doing a carbon manager demonstration program to get show the benefit of putting carbon managers into uh, highly professional carbon managers into businesses. So there's a lot going on. Um, and that's 
I'll leave so, it there so, for now. So if I just thought of that before I jumped to Alison, there's a few different things in there which actually are super innovative when you're talking about energy efficiency. You've talked about heat pumps at high temperatures. So when thinking about innovation, this isn't something that's been um, practical. You're talking about carbon managers in energy-intensive businesses, and this is not necessarily innovation of technology, but that's innovation in terms of mm. services. So whilst RACE's remit is quite large, the, the opportunity there in terms of innovation, in terms of supporting industry is, is uh, also quite large. Is that a fair yeah. estimation? Yeah, and we're, we're not the only... Well, firstly, just on the skills side, we've done a lot of work on the skills side and with you, as you know, with the uh, in terms of identifying the skills requirements in this area and, and ensuring that we have the skills to do the jobs. Um, but we also, with the uh, with the carbon manager side, is you know recognition that we need to build build a high level of competency within within business to allow and facilitate businesses to make good decisions. And as you mentioned, the innovation that we're doing is not just technology innovation; it's around uh, uh, finance, it's around business models, it's around regulatory issues, it's around standards. So, yeah. yeah. So we need a little bit of both, which is great to hear. And it is a very big. It is a very big area. We're not the only CRC working in the area, fortunately, um, and we could talk about others that are working in that area. But um, even though we seem to have a very large investment compared to what we're used to in this area, it's, it's really very small compared to what the full requirement is if we're going to be a leader in, in, in some of these areas. Awesome. Thanks, John. So building off that, Alison, if we're thinking this isn't just a case of innovation in technology, we also need innovation in terms of supply chains and skills and finance models and indeed policy. Uh, putting on your hat, what's a, just wearing your hat normally as you do, what do you think is, is, is important when it comes to, to policy in this space? And how can we support industrial energy users with improving their energy efficiency and indeed with reducing their energy and emissions. Yeah, I mean, I think just to put it in context, the industrial sector is probably this year or next year going to overtake the electricity sector as being the largest sectoral source of emissions in the country. Um, and so, and I mean, if you sort of disaggregate the emissions projections that were released last year, you can see that everything has been happening in the electricity sector and all of the other sectors, their emissions were projected just to sit flat between now and 2030. And we need to bend those curves downwards if we're going to hit the 43% target, but also if we're going to hit the, um, the 2050 target. The thing about the industrial sector, and you guys all know this, right, I'm preaching to the converted, is the assets are incredibly long-lived. And so when we think about the policy that goes into the industrial sector, we need to get the policy signals in there now because whatever we build this decade is going to stick around for 40 years. It will still be there post-2050 when we're trying to be at zero or net zero. Um, so I think the, the first thing is there is for strong policy to go into the industrial sector to reduce their emissions. And the safeguard mechanism, I think, is the, the policy the government's chosen to do that. Um, I think Davina put it really well in the last panel where she said everything you leave on the table now, you're going to have to pick up later when it's a lot more expensive. And that goes for the safeguard now. Every concession that is given away on the safeguard now is going to be something that is going to be very expensive to fix later and is going to stick around for a long time. The industrial facilities in the safeguard, there's around 167 of them. They're 80% of industrial emissions, right? 
you, you get those guys bending downwards and we can, we can pick up the other 20% later on. Um, I'd say the other thing that is important in the policy space here, it was very interesting to hear the minister say that she wants to see the demand side and the supply side better linked up. Um, because this is something that's been bugging me for ages is that often when we have energy policy debates in this country, you would think that demand was carved on a stone tablet somewhere and could <laughs> not be changed. We, we have the imagination when we do the, the um, integrated systems plan to think of a scenario where we triple or quadruple electricity demand in order to export hydrogen, but we don't have the imagination to say, what if we cut energy demand by 75%? I'm just pick, I'm picking that number out of the air, by the way. There's no science behind 75%. Um, so I think it's very heartening to say uh, that, you know, we actually need to think about what is the role of using less um, and, and how that makes our economy, I think, fit for a net zero world. Awesome. Thanks, Alison. And, and I appreciate you noting that 75% might be a little bit ridiculous, but 40% isn't ridiculous. It's something that we have seen commercial buildings do, and it's something that you know some of the industrial players are doing because they've got things like energy management systems, which are integral for industrial energy users in terms of reducing their energy consumption. Indeed, that's something that, that Mollycop has put in place, which, correct me if I'm wrong, by putting in an energy management system, it in effect has given you a strategy and, and given the organisation the opportunity to really enable continuous improvement in your energy consumption. When you think about uh, Mollycop's perspective, so Sharon, you've recently joined, you've been there for six months. What's the big standout thing that's happened for you in terms of thinking about what are they doing well with reducing their energy consumption and their emissions? Yeah. Um. I mean, I think there's lots of things. The thing that really strikes me is that it's really at the core of who we want to be. And so there are multiple strategies going on simultaneously in terms of what we're thinking about. And I think the current environment has really exacerbated that. You know, one of the things that um, uh, happens in Molycop is we really understand how energy is being used. So, and we watch price and we've got... Um, uh, some nice little um, formulas that actually make the price of electricity visible to our operators. And when it gets to a certain point, we actually switch off our furnace and we stop operating because we know that we can't recover the price of that in the market. And so what that means is that our workforce is very attuned to the impact of um, affordability and uh, that, um, uh, you know, during May, for example, we um, curtailed our furnace 150 times because the price was spiking. Now, that's not great for energy efficiency because actually if you turn your furnace off to heat it back up again, so, so interestingly, I was just looking at um, some stats before I came here today, uh, our energy efficiency was terrible this year despite all the things that we've done because it trades off against affordability uh, and reliability. So, Or it can it trade can. off. It doesn't always. Sometimes it's, you know, a match made in heaven. That, that's exactly right. But in this um, situation, yes. it, it makes yes. sense yeah. why, it, why it has maybe not been the best outcome necessarily. But it's been yep. good for Molycop. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, there, there, are, there are other things that we, we are doing along a similar theme where, uh, you know, with our gas usage, with um, our uh, smaller reheat furnaces, we actually, when, when we know there's a delay um, uh, coming from the steel make, we've actually got algorithms that calculate whether it's worth turning down the furnaces or keeping them up uh, based on what's actually going to be the most efficient use. Um, but of course, we're doing, you know, all sorts of things like, uh, you know, making sure that we retain as much 
um, heat in the furnaces, you know, curtains uh, on the furnace. Uh, we have just got some new technology. We've been working with the University of New South Wales on uh, putting um, polymers into our um, electric arc furnace, which actually then creates a different type of slag, which actually retains uh, heat within the furnace. And that's, that's some interesting technology uh, that we're using, but also now uh, are working to sell to other steelmakers overseas so that they can be more efficient as well. I think it's really cool that you are talking about innovation in this space and, and, you know, the opportunity for innovation. When we look at buildings and whilst there's heaps of opportunity in buildings, the technology's there, it's viable, we can deliver it right now and we should and hopefully everyone will walk away from today with, you know, a burning fire in their bellies saying, let's get moving more quickly. But within industrial uh, energy consumption, there is still a ton of opportunity for innovation and that's why strategy is obviously so important at a business level. But if we step it up a bit, earlier today we were told that we're going to have a national energy performance strategy and I think that's a really good opportunity. But Alison, as Luke mentioned, we've been here a couple of times. (laughs) What do you think is really important to make sure that this strategy stands out and makes us get to where we need to get? Um, This will sound a bit flippant, but it needs to be actually strategic. Um, (laughs) The last... I, I joined the Commonwealth Public Service in 2008, and in the second week I was there, my boss got pulled off to go and work on a task force to do um, Kevin Rudd's energy efficiency strategy, out of which came uh, GEMS and commercial building disclosure, but also the home insulation program. Um, and then I think under the Gillard government, I had some involvement in the, uh, what was it, the NESI, the National Strategy for Energy Efficiency, which then morphed into the NEP. Um, and all of those were kind of a shopping list of all of the stuff. Um, but they didn't have any prioritization. They didn't really have targets in them or the targets they had were very soft or the minister said earlier today, quite low. Um, they were more like project plans, just a way of tracking who was doing what and had they done it on time. Um, so I, I'm, I'm happy to see that, you know, we, we are going to have this, um, uh, this national uh, energy, what are we calling it? National Energy Performance. National energy performance Strategy. NEPS. I believe that's correct. NEPS. Can we call it yeah. NEPS from now on? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I think a, a good strategy is actually strategic. It sets priorities. It sets targets. I think the other thing that is a little bit different this time too is we've actually got some things we can learn from. We can look at what happened kind of by accident in building a renewable energy industry um, and see what we can learn from that about how you get technology investment like, you know, like John's CRC um, and practical things that people are, are doing and regulation and markets all working together. Um, you can also look at things like, um, this is slightly blowing my own trumpet because I helped write it, but the National Hydrogen Strategy as well was very formulated around what do you do now? What do you need to do soon? What can you put off to doing later? Um, but also just really thinking through that story of what is the, what is the 10 or 15 year, um, program to building something that looks really different? Um, I think the other thing that was sort of playing on my mind a bit here as well is a lot of what would, uh, what I think a strategy could do is perhaps focus on how we get a bit of a change in business practice. And I think the way Sharon's sort of been talking is there are some businesses for whom 
energy management is in their DNA, but there's a lot of businesses in the industrial sector for whom it is not. And that's the kind of behavioural change that you need to um, to create. And that's behavioural change is the hardest part of any policy field. It's not something that you can just throw money at bits of kit for. It's a little bit like the difference between buying a pair of sneakers and becoming a runner. Those are two different things. I have a pair of sneakers. I am still struggling with the becoming a runner bit. Um, and that that's the sort of, um, you know, if you're trying to look at the long-term change you want and how that fits into something like a net zero goal, that's what you're trying to do. I'd like to throw in a few too. Yeah. I was about to come to you next, John, so have at it. A um, little bit of coordination between state and uh, oh, yes, Commonwealth. So that we have coordinated <laughs> programs that have the same rules everywhere and, and look the same uh, would be nice for business. Um, skills, mm. critical. There's a very, very big skill shortage and competency at, uh, in, in, in business. And the final one is, uh, is a bit, bit of a zinger. Like I've, if I hear another government saying, we're really serious about this but we're not spending any money, because we we actually think this is going to, the market is going to do this one. So what we're going to focus all of our money on something else. Um, so I've heard this even with this government. <laughs> I must say, I, uh, and uh, you know we'd like to do whatever we possibly can do, but we don't want to spend any money because the budget's tight. At the same time, we're going to spend twenty billion dollars on putting in transmission assets, uh, which you know maybe five billion, which we could get rid of if we if we did the demand side effectively. So let's you know reallocate some of the capital if we're going to be short of short of funds, even if it's not coming from budget, it might come from a an investment base for the, from from the Commonwealth. We can make that investment, reallocate that investment into uh, into the demand side. Um, so they're my three three additions, but I, mm. we, we've been fellow sufferers. Well, I mean, I, I think I would be really sad if we had another six months of having a conversation about whether or not there are any $100 notes lying on the floor that people haven't picked up. Um, yeah. We've been round that roundabout so many times. We, mm-hmm. we know that it's not $100 notes. It's 100 bucks worth of 20-cent pieces tucked away in little corners. Um, and let's learn let's from, move on. from world best practices yeah. instead of pretending that no one's got a practice and we've got to actually make this up and it's experimental. That'd be nice too. I think the good opportunity here is it's not just world's best practice, there is domestic best practice. Mm. Now, you've got obvious uh, businesses that are leading in the commercial building space, uh, like the business which we're sitting in right now, but you've also got businesses like Mollycop that are doing this. And to Alison's point when talking about $100 bills on the floor or, you know, bucket loads of 20-cent pieces sitting on the floor, Mollycop's probably already hit off all the 20-cent pieces. And whilst there's That's opportunities for those 20-cent pieces for many other businesses out there, from Mollycop's perspective, when you're thinking about strategy and you're thinking about those different areas of skills, supply chains, regulation that's necessary, ensuring that the tech's there, where you're at in your journey, what do you want to be able to see in a strategy that's going to enable you to go from having made that initial 25% reduction in your energy uh, productivity or improvement apologies in your energy productivity, what's going to enable you to improve that even more? Yep, yep. And, and I think, as I said, you know, one of the things for us is that there were still opportunities there, but they're now the quite expensive ones. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there are some good opportunities there with big prizes, but they don't necessarily pay back on their own in reasonable timeframes because the cash outlay for an organisation of our size is just not quite there. So this is where I think funding, um, because funding reduces the risk, funding, we're we're private equity owned um, by a US company, 
uh, others contributing to the funding uh, creates the urgency to do it because when funding's available, organisations so act. good old-fashioned carrots, businesses yep. still like them. Yep, yep. That abso- Pretty straightforward. That, that absolutely helps. I, I think the other thing um, is just going to that whole question about you know, certainty of the landscape moving forward. Uh, one of the things, uh, you know, we recognise we're capable in this space and uh, we've actually been uh, developing technology to help our customers become more efficient. So uh, we've got a technology where um, steel balls that go in mills in mines, we put sensors in them which actually then can map what's happening inside the mills so and can cool. then um, can then we can work with mines around how do they make their uh, mills more uh, efficient and uh, so so you know the extent to which there's government policy and a strategy that's encouraging everyone to play in this space obviously helps us because we're wanting to uh, be commercial leaders in that and commercialise some of that technology but I think also just helps the whole industry know where we're playing and creates those incentives. So, of course, there is some government money in this uh, in the R and D area. Yep. You mentioned a couple of projects you could do with us. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are some things that we are getting funding for. So yeah, we've been pretty good at accessing uh, funding. But yes, we'll talk more. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, Molly Copy is a leader in this space. You've tapped into flexibility markets like RUT and FCAS, and it's great to see that you are thinking about up and down your supply chain and, and how can we leverage those benefits. We've actually got a question from the floor, which I can see, which is for you, Sharon, explicitly wondering if you've yet looked at industrial heat pumps or are they one of the technologies that at present isn't making sense um, or just isn't viable given the temperatures that you are dealing with, which are far beyond what a heat pump would be (laughs) working with. Yes. So um, I haven't heard that talked about in my six months. So so we know that in our uh, roadmap that we're going to need to go to electrification. And so we talk about what that looks like. But that's quite a long way down. And Mm -hmm. I'm not aware that anyone started the work on what that would be. Which segues well over to John. You mentioned heat pumps over 90 degrees for industrial processes. What's race looking at doing in this space? Um, I can't tell you exactly at the moment, but we want to do some use cases in that in that steam range because yep. this is where the big uh, industrial application is in the food industry, for example. Um, so if we could actually get um, a lot of the steam replaced in in the uh, in the food industry and and other similar industries. Um, using heat pumps, that's, that would be very interesting to us. It's being just the front end of that is being done in Europe um, and we want to do some use cases over here and just get the industry moving moving along in that area. Yeah. Could I just say something about Go that too? It. I think um, in some ways sometimes getting the heat pumps the easy bit, the hard bit is figuring out how everything else that's around the heat pump has to change. True, it's a lot of engineering and, involved. And when we talk about you know funding for stuff, I think sometimes it's not just funding the actual bit of kit it's funding people to sort of figure out, well, what is this going to mean for space and how, you know, the conveyor belts are configured and is this going to change the timing of different parts of my process and am I going to have to run two shifts or can I now collapse everything into one shift and save myself on my wages bill? And it's that hassle factor and I think sometimes that acts as a barrier for, for people and finding a way for policy and government to support people through that process, I think, would be really valuable. And I think there is a funding program just so, uh, kicking off in that yeah, area. It, what that? I was explicitly yeah. going to say, so for, for those of you playing at home, ARENA's just opened up an industrial energy transformation studies program, which is, can't think how much money it is right now. I, feel I think like it's $43 million. $43 million. 43, yeah. Yep, $43 million. So there is opportunity there. We're not talking about, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars that's available to industrial 
uh, businesses mm. but to skills effectively are a big problem, scope but, up. But yeah, exactly. Area. Skills are a big, a big problem and also building off $43 million worth of funding so that any business anywhere, anytime can get access to someone who can come and do that for them. Like that's kind of... You can sort of, Arena's very good at priming things at one end of the pipeline, but you've got to have some other pull through that actually creates an industry, whether it's an industry for widgets or an industry of people, um, who can actually give you the really scaled up change. $43 million isn't going yep. to scale. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit. Yeah. So, think, just sorry, just one point. I think you made an excellent point there because the, um, the, the heat pump issue is, is a classic one where you do have to integrate it into the plant and, when we were doing work at A2EP um, uh, earlier, a couple of years ago, um, in that area, we found that we had to train a lot of people uh, because um, there were people who could, you know, replace lights or mm. do compressed air projects or something like that. But when it came to actually do a process integration study in a, in a manufacturing plant, just the, the, you could count them on one hand. So we, we actually did train some people. We got, uh, got people in from... Over from New Zealand, actually, to, uh, to train them on uh, process integration, but it's it is a you know there is a big skill shortage for that higher level of competency where you actually have to understand the process. So, John, my uh, follow up to that, which I, th- I think fits in, the race for twenty thirty, its first opportunity assessment that you released publicly, I must fully disclose, I was very much involved <laughs> in it. Uh, you on, drove it. <laughs> uh, thanks, John. Um, it was on developing the future energy workforce. Yeah. And there's some key takeouts from that which have definitely got government interest. Can you give us a bit of uh, context around what the Australian Energy and Employment Report is and how that's going to help us fill these types of gaps? Well, you probably know more that, more about that than I do. Yeah, but, but I'm the chair, so I'm not supposed to be no, talking no, right you, now. You are. You, you, can, you can talk about it, but I think the, uh, the important thing there is that um, through the work that we did and through Holly's uh, excellent uh, advocacy. There were multiple people involved, <laughs> including multiple people in this room. <laughs> we got the Commonwealth to, uh, to commit to doing a regular survey. Uh, the only problem is they haven't allocated an adequate resources to do it properly yet. And I'm sure Fingers crossed they I'm will sure for the next on financial way. year. Yeah, I'm sure they're on the way to getting there. But uh, it's a very important piece of work, obviously, because we need to know where the skills gaps are and be able to track the uh, skilled employment in that across that uh, the energy sector to be able to uh, make sure that we can address some of those shortages. But, yeah, you, you can tell, talk more about the details. Well, well, I could. If anyone wants to talk about workforce <laughs> planning, I'm, I'm here all night, so happy to have a <laughs> chat. But thinking of the workforce on the ground, uh, when we're talking about Mollycop's endeavours, has workforce been an issue? Have you been able to find people that can help you with improving your energy productivity? I think we're lucky. Uh, we've been uh, operating in Australia for 100 years. We tend to have a relatively long-serving workforce, uh, so we're still getting the benefit of you know people who were trained a long time ago. Um, we're currently working through the fact that we've got many experts getting close to retirement and not enough coming through. So it's certainly something on our radar as something that we expect that if we're not acting now, we might be constrained by yep. capability in the future. But right now, uh, we've got capable, enthusiastic people <laughs> uh, who, can, who can do most of the things we need to. And, of course, we partner too. Yep. Um, yep. 
I think what I can say, and I think it clearly should be said, uh, the Commonwealth Government is working on both a workforce strategy in the energy space. In addition to that, they're also working on getting up this really useful Australian Energy and Employment Report, which is going to give us baseline data and it's going to enable us to build out the skills, uh, the professional development pathways to actually support companies like Mollycops. So if I was to round it out, guys, if you think about the strategy uh, for each of you, and Alison, I'm going to go to you first. And I know you said we need an integrated strategy that's looking at lots of different areas and goes beyond just having a, a tick box. Is there a particular part of the strategy that you think is sorely lacking and we need to put some really um, severe thinking into over the next couple of months as that's being drafted up? Oh, that's a tricky question. Um, I, I think it, it possibly comes back to what I said before about um, rather than talking about the barriers that we already all know about, you know, your, your principal agent problems, your salience problems, et cetera, et cetera, talking about that hassle factor barrier and how we overcome that. And I think that probably applies to more than one sector as well. I suspect that's probably something that's quite important in households as well, that it just, it, it, you have to allocate a lot of your time to becoming more energy efficiency. And that's not always the way that you want to use your time. Um, so I'd like to see that. And I'd like to also see how it's going to dovetail with all the other policy areas. So how's it going to dovetail with um, things like the National Reconstruction Fund things like the rewiring the nation um, with integrated system planning, um, you know, all of the various other policy areas that we have that all have an impact on energy somewhere. And how do we get energy and energy efficiency built into all of those policies? So I'm going to summarise that with a TLDR of integration, integration into business systems so mm -hmm. that individual businesses are able to roll out a model that enables them to actually deliver energy efficiency at scale, but also integration with wider work that's happening across the energy system to ensure that we have a least yeah. cost pathway forward. Yeah. Oh, sorry, can I check one more thing? Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to check one. I think the other <laughs> thing is um, something that we're not thinking about enough in the whole energy transition thing is how do we get the people and the bits of kit and the materials when the whole rest of the world is trying to do this stuff at the yeah. same time? And also, particularly when we're talking about building infrastructure, um, how do we get that stuff when we're also trying to build a whole lot of other infrastructure in the rest of the economy? Um, so really, really having an eye on what things can we do to make sure Australia gets that sort of aggregated buying power in international markets to get the kit that we're going to need and to attract the people that we're going to need to do this. That's a really good summary on that. So, John, you've now got to back that up. In uh, yeah, your opinion, uh, what's, what's most important? Thank you for that, I, I Alan. I think it's got, to, it's got to have real vision um, and long-term commitment um, and be focused on opportunities for Australia, not just about, uh, about you know, short-term savings. Or It's got to be with a vision to, to where it could take the economy and where it could take employment in Australia. Um, I think that's what's been missing all the way along is just, you know, a, a real long-term vision. So we, we could be in this place uh, by 2030 um, and uh, that's, that's a, I think, will drive a lot of enthusiasm and excitement and uh, it's a sexy area. So by that I assume explicitly you're saying more than just a 43% emissions uh, reduction target by 2030, wanting more for that, wanting more jobs, wanting better business productivity, wanting healthier, comfortable homes, all of those things. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about in terms of vision? Yes, and, uh, and particularly in this case for business around energy productivity. Awesome. Love it. And uh, with that, going for business, 
from your perspective, from Mollycop's perspective, Sharon, what's really important to see from government that's going to enable you guys to deliver your emissions reductions and energy productivity goals? Yeah, yeah. So I think rather than talk from Mollycop's perspective, because I think, um, yeah, there's perhaps less of a prize for us. As I said, there, there is some big ticket items that we need to uh, walk up to and we'll need some support with that. But I actually think in terms of the strategy, one of the key um, challenges I think for industry is that there's lots that people can do like we've done uh, in terms of just with what people have got. But actually technology plays a huge part and for you know, for for some of our colleagues in the steel industry, they get, you reach a point where you can't do more until there's new technologies mm -hmm. available. And I think that needs to be really thought through in terms of the strategy. That there'll be different sectors of industry that can move at different speeds, and some of that will actually be dependent on when technology is there. And the strategy needs to account for that by not expecting everyone can move at exactly the same pace. Uh, and then we need to have an eye to encouraging that technology to come faster and to be adopted as soon as it's available, but recognising in some places we just don't have it yet. Awesome. I think that's a really good place to end. And it's, I think if I was to summarise this conversation, uh, we're saying innovation in, in the industrial sector is still very much needed in the technology space, but we also need it across broader areas in terms of skills and supply chains and business models that enable businesses to actually integrate energy efficiency and emissions reduction at scale. But at the same time, we also wanted to have integrated solutions that recognise that some businesses can move quicker than others, uh, but those that are slower because of uh, lack of capability right now in areas like cement, for example, they're still on the journey and, and they want to be involved. So uh, with that, I believe I'm supposed to be passing back to Luke, and I'd like to say a massive thanks to the three of you for joining us today. And I'd also like to point out, this is like the first time I've seen an industrial panel that has more women than men, so <laughs> to whoever gave tennis over. <laughs> thanks for being the token bloke. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> thanks, guys. special series of First Fuel episodes bringing you panels from the 2022 Energy Efficiency Summit to a close. Uh, if you want to check out the videos uh, that accompany uh, all of these presentations, you can, of course, visit ec.org.au forward slash summit22. They're all up on our website in full Technicolor. And I want to take this uh, final opportunity to thank our partners, the Australian Council of Social Service, Australian Industry Group, and of course the Property Council of Australia. It was a genuine joint effort uh, pulling this summit together pretty quickly and um, convening an incredible group of speakers and delegates and indeed participants uh, that were tuning in right around Australia. It was um, it was an uh, outstanding outcome for elevating this crucial topic in the public debate. Thanks too to our supporters, uh, Siemens and, and Mervac, uh, who uh, helped us pull together the event on the day. And thanks to the entire EC team, who uh, worked incredibly hard behind the scenes to uh, make it all a success. All right, well, uh, next episode, it's back to uh, regularly scheduled programming, but in the meantime, it's uh, goodbye from us. Catch you soon.